I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. Some are famous, some are rich, some are both, and some are neither. But they're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. You'll hear life stories of celebrated TV and film stars, musicians, producers, comedians, composers, and rock stars, to name a few. And that's just a start. We also explore the surprising journeys of entrepreneurs, doctors, business people, athletes, and CEOs you may never have heard of, but we'll be glad you did. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming a fellow Canadian into our studio. David Foster and I both grew up in Canada. David's musical career is amazing. At the age of 13, he enrolled in the University of Washington's music program. And as a young musician, he joined a backup band for Chuck Berry and played in the rock bands The Strangers and The Skylark. His career in music led him to a path as one of today's most successful producers, probably of all time. He has produced Alice Cooper, Christina Aguilera, Andre Bocelli, Tony Braxton, Michael Buble, Chicago, Natalie Cole, Celine Dion, Josh Groban, Seal, Madonna, Barbara Streisand, and many others. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with David Foster. We'd like to know about your early life. You know, where did you begin? When did you know that you had this incredible talent in music? And um, so can we start there? Sure. You know, it's funny because, Rebecca, when you mentioned three Canadians, you might well remember being raised Canadian. You're kind of taught that you can go for the bronze. And that's kind of the mantra. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily and, and thankfully the three of us in this room, the three Canadians, did not get that memo. But it is a, it is a cultural thing of, you, can, you know, if you really work hard, you can get third place. And I didn't get that memo. And um, I had a great... A loving family, two great parents, father who was an amateur musician and uh, a mother who supported my father. I had this talent at, at an early age and they, although we had no money, we weren't poor, didn't feel poor. And uh, they managed to scrape together money for me to have lessons starting at age five. And um, and I, I slugged through it until age 13 taking classical music. But by the time I was around 12 or 13, I kind of got fed up playing other people's music and, and the Beatles had come along and they kind of changed the course of my life. And I was now starting to do gigs. I had a dance band and at age 13, I had a band where I was the leader and we would get gigs on the weekend. And I'd, I remember this one time I knocked on the door of the bride and the father came and he said, yeah, he thought I was the paper boy. And I said, no, I'm here to discuss your daughter's wedding. I'm the band leader. And it's like, it was, it was weird. Yeah. And so oh. I said, I need a set list of what, what kind of songs you want and all that. And, and so I was literally making more money than my father by the time I was 13. And, and uh, I don't say that shamefully for him, but it was, uh, it was quite wow. a childhood. What a lot of nerve knocking on somebody's mm. door and saying, hi, yeah. here set I list, am. Please. I have an overall theory, which I don't, we don't, we don't want to drill too deep on this I'm sure but I believe that everybody gives is given the same amount of talent only in different arenas I think there's a Whitney Houston walking around in the middle of Africa somewhere who's never going to get the shot because of the geographical problems but I believe that everybody gets the same amount of talent in different ways in mind's music and you found it very young five yeah, is a lot really of people young. Don't, a lot of people yeah. don't find it yeah, yeah. I think you have it. to take inventory I agree with you completely 
I think people need to take inventory and really be genuine with themselves about where you're interested in spending your days and do you have enough talent to pursue that. Right. And then there's the discipline factor. So what makes somebody like all of us in this room more disciplined than uh, some of our friends that we went to school with? What made me want to just work so hard on my music that I didn't care about anything else? I mean, And still today do. Yeah. And the path to success is straight. It's not curved. And that's why I never did drugs, because any diversion is taking you off the road to success. And I, my, one of my mantras is to kids when I speak to them is, if you're not working on Saturday or Sunday, someone else is, and they want your job. Do you think, though, that when you, you really recognize what your talent is, like you did at an early age, it's just you have enthusiasm and passion for it. It's much easier to stay on that, that course. Yeah, and that's the real gift, Kim. Imagine at 10, I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. That's the real gift. I meet people that are 30 years old that have no clue what they want to do with their lives. That's tragic. Yeah. yeah, I know people at fifty yeah. that yeah. look back on their lives and say, <laughs> "What sure. happened to me?" You know, I, yeah. I didn't do anything for sure, and now I'm fifty. It's one thing to be deeply talented musically; it's another to be running a business at thirteen to have this sort of uh, social skills and wherewithal as a as a kid. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I think that it's it's probably, and, and this is not to get a laugh, but I think it's being a control freak. And, you know, the type A personality and being a control freak, and that's probably where that came from. And then, interestingly, um, my business acumen, which was so heightened as a kid, slowly waned as I got older. As I got more and more into music, I cared more and more about the music and less and less about the business, which is why people that I discovered along the way, artists that are huge superstars, I didn't sign them to myself. I didn't take that time to nurture the business side of what I could have owned and built in terms of recording empire versus just, I just want to make music. I just want to make music. When did you have that epiphany about, oh, wait a minute, kind of have a little bit more of a sort of my fingerprints on that? It's it's kind of an ongoing epiphany that's never really going to be fully realized now. And I think Rebecca, you know, knows me well enough and and we work, Rebecca and I work together uh, on a financial basis and she knows, she will tell you, in the financial end of things, I could have done a lot more than what I did, but I made a pound of music over the years, you know, Mm, and uh, I don't feel bad about that. You know, there's very few people that can wear both hats. If you look at somebody like Jimmy Iovine, who was a record producer, but then he cut it clean and became a businessman. And it's impossible to do both. Yeah. You have an immense talent of taking an artist and making them better. I think it's it's my best. I mean, I'm in the service business, so I'm no different really than a waiter or uh, a manager or, you know, my job is to make in my own egotistical mind when I'm in the studio with a singer. I want to make them sing better for me than they've ever sung for anybody else or ever will again. That's my mantra when I go in. And it's not always true, of course, but I believe that I'm going to be the greatest thing ever for them. So I push and I push and I push. I mean, not screaming matches, but I've had a lot of artists really get upset with me. And I want to tell them, look, it's your picture in front of the CD when there was CDs. It's not my picture. And I'd rather be home having dinner myself, too. So... Let's get that straight. But I need more because I want to make you sound great because good is the enemy of great. And it's so easy for you, the singer, Whitney, whoever, so easy for you to be good. Let's be great. It's like psychology too, isn't it? You have to be mother, father, sister, brother. Yeah. And I think I've become quite good at it, you know, at the psychology of getting the best out of somebody. And that in itself is a talent, I think. Will you work with anyone you think is talented or you at this stage of your career want to work with an artist that has some... You know, real backing as far as the business side that they're going to get a shot. I don't care so much about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I love great singers. And I think if you look at my my track record going back to the 70s, when I late 70s when I started producing with Hall & Oates and Earth, Wind & Fire, and if you 
look at the trajectory. It's always been about great singers. I don't think I've ever worked with bad singers, and there's plenty of them out there that have success, and I admire them. I shouldn't say bad. I should just say not up to my standards, and I love their records. And let's take somebody, for instance, Britney. Britney's not a great singer. I love her records. I think she's amazing. It just wouldn't be somebody for me. Do you help on the writing of the songs with them and arranging? And That's how I became such a successful writer is just by co-writing mm-hmm. with all these amazing artists, you know? Hey, we need one more song for the album. Let's sit down and write it. Mm-hmm. So to anybody out there that's listening, obviously positioning is important. And I will say this one other thing too. In fact, I want to ask all four of you. What do you think is the key to success? If you had to describe it in one word, Rebecca? Focus. Okay. Focus. Okay. Faith in... Faith in yourself? Mm. Okay, well, you're all wrong. I mean, I hate to say that. (laughs) No, I believe, and this is what I teach kids when I go speak at universities, the number one key to success is networking. Network? Networking. Networking. I look at a class of 100 students, and I say, how many are singers? And six people put up their hands. How many are bass players? Two guys. How many are engineers? Eight guys. I said, you guys have the capability right in this room to make a hit record. You got the bass player, you got the singer, you got the engineer, you got the guitar player, you got you don't even know each other. Get to know each other. Network. That's how the guys like that's how Bill Gates and them did it. Such an interest. That's so interesting. When I think about what you just said, I think that you're absolutely right. You also have to be prepared to ask. I think that You do it all the time. I know you do. I do. Yeah, and, and in do. a kind way, though. Not in well, a- that's how you really actually, you can be really pleasantly surprised of different collaborations and things you can do together by just having conversations with people, mm-hmm. not even in your lane often, but just, oh, what are you doing? Let's try this. And, and that's what's really exciting about birthing new ideas. Yeah. Oh, out of your lane is even better than just, in your lane. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. You've worked with Michael Bublé being a Canadian as well. So is there any like joy in helping Canadian artists become global superstars? We're all proud as the three of us Canadians. I'm sure you guys are too. I'm very proud to be a Canadian. I'm a huge flag waver. And when I look at what's come out of Canada, in my own case, Celine and Buble as two artists that I shaped, but there's so many. And it's just great. I mean, if you look at Vancouver itself, I have a, a foundation, which we may talk about She's uh, going to talk later. about that next, actually. Our next big event is October 21st. And my plan is, it's in Vancouver, coinciding with the opening of a big complex casino and arena. I want to have Brian Adams, Michael Buble, Sarah McLaughlin, Diana Krall, and Loverboy. They're all from Vancouver. What's the, who's the last person? Loverboy. Uh, Loverboy. Remember Loverboy? Yeah. Working for the weekend? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. I mean, Everybody's yeah. You go, girl. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? I mean, all local Vancouver. I mean, Diana's from the island, but pretty much Vancouver. That's a lot of talent out of one city. Can we talk about the Foster Foundation, of which yes. I'm slightly familiar with, but it, it's such an you interesting You are. You've thing. been a big help to our we, foundation. We, did, we, we aim to do that. We're all together in the not-for-profit world trying to move our little things forward. In your case, yeah. what you're, the work you're doing and the initiation of your work with the phone call from your mom, can we start from the beginning of sure. the Foster Very briefly, uh, I got a phone call from my mother 30 years ago saying there's a young girl who needs a liver transplant. Back then, it was experimental surgery in Canada, so they had to come to Los Angeles or to Pittsburgh to get the work done. She was laying there. She said, go visit her. She's from Victoria. Not because I was anybody special, just because I'm from Victoria, too. I went and saw her, and when I asked her if I could help her, she said, I would just want to see my sister. I thought she'd say, I want to go to Disneyland, but she said, I just want to see my sister. But, of course, the family couldn't afford to fly the sister down from Victoria. And it becomes this whole situation with the family as you 
know and can imagine that it just breaks down the whole moral fiber of the family and that one parent has to stay while the other one moves a thousand miles away. They have to wait for months. The money, they mortgage their house, they break up, they divorce, they lose everything. So they really have to have two lives to successfully complete the transplant program. That child ultimately died, but it just kind of moved me. And up until I was 30, I really was kind of a selfish idiot that didn't really care about anybody except myself and getting ahead with my music. And then the light switch went on and I become very, very, very philanthropic in my own way. And it just feels good, you know. And the foundation now, we have a $50 million endowment goal and we're going to get there. And the work that the Foster Foundation is doing and, and is expanding in, the focus really is to support the families of the people who have various forms. And what is the process that somebody goes to to make a request for financial aid from the Foster Foundation? Well, we are the only bright spot in the worst day of a family's life. So if you can imagine in Toronto, they've just been told their son or daughter needs a heart transplant the worst day of their life. And then the social worker, we work through the social workers, and she says, the only good news is there is a foundation that will pay for everything non-medical for you while you go through this one month, one year, five year process. And they'll pay your bills, they'll pay your mortgage, they'll set up you with an apartment. And it's the one bright spot in the worst day of their lives. And it's incredibly rewarding. And interestingly, when I visit the families at the hospitals, I tend to hang out with the siblings more than the sick child. Because the sick child gets all the attention. And the siblings are quite often off in the corner. And they're just sort of, you know, they're pushed aside for the obvious reasons. And they don't get the attention. Um, so I like to spend time with them. But it's a, it's a you know... The world can be a pretty dark place. One of the things that, as, as you know, um, I founded Teen Cancer America with Roger Daltrey. Yeah. And one of the things that has always been the thing that makes me the most proud of the work that you're doing aligns in the area of the work that we're doing and that we keep our expenses, as you do, crazy low. Mm -hmm. You have a very small overhead. We do. And the, so much of the money that you raise goes directly to the hands of the people who need it. And you're not all fluffy with right. staff and office space and, you know, fancy, fancy stationery. Yeah. You raise money and it goes straight back out. Yeah, we have gotten bigger. I mean, just by the nature of we're ocean to ocean to ocean. That's the Pacific to the Atlantic to the Arctic. We help, you know, Northwest Territories, Inuvik, the uh, indigenous people. So it's, we have now five staff, but they're all underpaid. We have free offices. <laughs> and overworked. <laughs> yeah, and overworked. We have free offices. And it does cost a lot of money to put on big events, as you well know. It does. But um, we're going to get to $50 million. But you get, when you do these events, the amount of money that you're able to deliver back into the hands of the foundation minus the expenses is a great ratio. It is. It's very low. It's been as low as like 9%, but it's also been as high as 25%. Uh, but it's still in, well in the within the not-for-profit space. That's a really it, good ratio. It's still a great. It's low a really number. great ratio. Yeah, and I've done a lot of so many charities other than my own where I put the show together, and I ask for them to donate to my charity. So, well, that, that speaks helps. to your always saying yes part of your personality. You know, that's <laughs> why so I'm actually only 31 years old, but I just yeah. don't look at. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been uh, honored to be in a room where you said yes to somebody. Yeah. And when you host our dear friend Hayim and his Friends of the Israeli Defense Fund, uh -huh. which every single year you manage to say yes to that. Yeah. And between the two of you, you know, mostly him because you're not as nearly as much of a beater as he is. I'm not as wealthy as him. <laughs> you're not as wealthy, but he beats, you know, I need that much money from you. You're not quite yeah. like that. But you say yes to everything. I mean, there's, I have 
had the pleasure of seeing you to support other people's charities for years and years and years. And you do it gratuitously. You don't yeah. do it, you know, don't pay me for this. I'm going to show up for you. But in the end, don't you think there's a scorecard? Well, I don't know that I would say a scorecard. I would say that in the end, it makes us feel really like we've lived a good and full life. Right. Yeah. Were they happy, your parents? Relatively happy. I mean, like most big families, I guess. You know, a lot of children would, in, you know, I would assume from that that they had joy with each other, that they enjoyed each other. Yeah, we were so well behaved that people would invite us out, all nine of us, to dinners, and all of us were so well behaved. It was amazing. I don't know. You know, we had strict parents. Did you have moments being the only boy that you just felt smothered that you had all these sisters that were probably telling you what never, to do there's never enough for you, you, right? And like, you must have just... Repeat after me, King, <laughs> king David. <laughs> I was the king. In fact, it's terrible because my sisters laugh about it. My my mother used to like, you know, my sisters would get up for school and they'd have like a piece of toast or something. But she made me bacon and eggs every morning. Oh it's like, <laughs> like my sisters should hate me, but they don't. How did you then grow up into somebody who doesn't sort of expect to be fussed over and well you know, you're assuming he doesn't expect yeah to be fussed over. <laughs> let me ask you how how does that, about that. How does that know growing up affect who you are today let's just say why are you girls out of the kitchen <laughs> you don't no. mean that though <laughs> no i don't yeah. Yeah. inauthentic no i mean that. i love women obviously i mean i've been married a few times and uh i have a great respect for women and I get on with women, and I produce mainly women, I think. I mean, when I think about my runs with Natalie Cole and with Whitney and with Barbara Streisand and with Celine and uh, Tony Braxton, and there's been so many women. And Donna. Uh, and Donna Summer, yeah. I, and a lot of them have stayed lifelong friends. So I, I get on well with women. Every time I hear Whitney Houston sing this song, that I'm trying to remember the name of the song that you produced, it makes me cry. I'm I Will a, Always Love You? Oh, yeah. Greatest song of all which time. Was song. Which was Dolly's song. Yeah. Dolly wrote All of yeah. the songs. Yeah, Dolly wrote yeah. yeah. Have you ever worked with her? Are you I not have. really? Have you? I haven't. I, in fact, I did her Christmas album, and I sang a duet with her, too, actually. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, she's she's quite something, that Dolly. So early on when you were uh, you were in Canada, and then you're in a band, a musician yourself, out in the world touring. And when did you get to Los Angeles, and when did it become more about producing and writing as opposed to being a performer full-time? Mm. Uh, my first wife, her name is Bonnie Jean, still is, <laughs> she had contacts in Los Angeles. We put a band together when, when I was 21, and we came to Los Angeles, and she helped us get a record deal with Capitol Records. And we, lo and behold, had a hit. And that, What was the name of that? Yeah, was- uh, the song was called Wildflower. And, um, Could we have a few bars of it? Hum? Well, I don't really sing, but it was... Uh, well, there's a piano there, but it's not mic, so that's going to be bad. Um, <laughs> I can't even tell you whether or not it's tuned. Here we go. Here we go. Let her cry, for she's a lady. Oh, wow. So, um, <laughs> totally we know that song. We were one-hit wonder, but that allowed us to stay in L.A., and then the band broke up, and my wife and I had uh, a young child, and uh, no money, and we just stayed in Los Angeles, and I kind of worked my way up um, playing rehearsal piano and uh, played at the Rocky Horror Show for a year at the Roxy oh, yeah. in 1975. Mm-hmm. And then I met a wonderful drummer who you know, Rebecca, I think, named Jim Keltner. Mm-hmm. And uh, he took me under his wing and introduced me to George Harrison. Oh. I started playing for the Beatles, and it was... Wow. It oh, was, my God. Yeah, it was fairy tale stuff for sure. That's unbelievable. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like, the Beatles? not many people have that. About George. No. Yeah. I mean, George to me is yeah. like even a level up from the Beatles. For yeah, me. he was pretty He's special. Well, they all were pretty special. I mean, geez, the amount of music they made in eight years was just 
phenomenal. We were but, talking about that the other day, you know, 50 years from now or 100 years from now, who will be remembered? I think the Beatles will be remembered 100%. for sure. Can we talk about jazz? It has had such a profound impact on my life. I was really lucky in those ages between 13 and 18 to have a mentor, a guy named Rick Reynolds, who was a jazz bass player in Victoria. He would take me over to his house every every, every, every Saturday, and he would sit me in front of the speakers and he would say, now listen to this. And he would unwrap these albums as though they were gold. And he'd put on Bill Evans. And he'd turn yeah. me into Oscar Peterson and Bill Evans oh and Keith God. Jarrett and Chick Corea and mm. all the great piano players and Art Tatum. And, and then we would argue about what I liked and what he liked. And it was the education that I needed. Yeah. And if you look closely at some of my songs, you'll hear a lot of jazz within the pop song. They're heavily disguised. But if you listen to a song like After the Love Is Gone that I co-wrote for Earth, Wind & Fire or a song called Morning for Al Jarreau, they're very heavily laced in jazz chords, you know, lifted right from Bill Evans. Yeah. I spent some time last week with Dr. Francis Collins, who's a friend of mine. He's the head of the National Institutes for Health. Brilliant guy, worked on the genome theory, worked on the DNA strands, like brilliant, brilliant doctor. Also loves music, plays guitar, sings, loves more than anything. He said, David, we have just discovered that, you know how you uh, examine brains under the MRI and they put dye in them, they can see which which part of the brain lights up when you're doing certain tasks, Mm -hmm. when you're doing math, when you're meditating, when you're thinking, when you're angry. He said, we have discovered that every single human since the beginning of time has a music room in their brain. A music room in their brain. That's wow. so beautiful. Isn't that amazing? That's a profound, it's profound. unbelievable it's profound. thing. And talk a little bit more about that. So. Well, the, the meaning behind the meaning is, mm-hmm. you know, the medicine men used to use music to heal people. They would sing to a broken ankle with tones that resonate. Back in Tibet, you know, there would be a circle prayer of, of men who would all hum and the vibrations would try to heal the person in the center of the seat. So, and then the drums from the native Indians, the drums were not just drums. A drum has a tone to it and everybody relates differently to a specific tone. If you go in the shower and if you go like this in the shower, if you start here, uh, and you just raise your voice up, you will hit that sweet spot where everything reverberates. That's the tone for your body. So you have a music room great. in your brain. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about music today? I All these artists today. that are out there, Justin Bieber and... Yeah. I think Justin Bieber's last album was amazing. Not only was it amazing, but he managed to create a concept album the way we remember concept albums with Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, or you know these concept albums that we would that would come along. His album was a concept album, which was amazing. I think Drake is great. I think that Rihanna is amazing. She's got great. She song has sense. amazing voice. That girl. Interestingly, her voice is not as amazing as her song choices and her presentation and delivery. I mean, she's no Celine Dion, but it doesn't matter. Right. Got- it's interesting that Drake and Bieber and The Weeknd, they're all out of Ontario. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Isn't it? It's almost crazy? like what's in the water. Yeah. <laughs> Sean Mendes. Yeah, yes. They're all from that little... Mm-hmm. The record business is in great trouble right now, but the music business is alive and thriving. And if you talk to Bieber or Drake or Kendrick and all that, and what do you think about the business? It's great. Are you kidding? I'm making a million bucks a night in the arena. My CDs are streaming <laughs> millions. And, right. They're know. making a lot on yeah. streaming. It's that 90 10 you know, ten percent are making all the money, and 1%. all the other one percent, one percent, and then uh, the streaming on all the other acts, not so much. Exactly, but that'll yeah. fi- that's going to write itself. Is there any artist that you look at, you go, oh, if they just did this or tweaked this or their song choice, that would be the key to really taking them over the top? Well, there are artists, and there's one in particular who will be nameless, who okay. I love, uh-huh. him slash her. 
I've always loved him slash her. And, but he, she, she had the worst song choice brain. Like, she wouldn't know a hit if it fell on her. And it ruined her career. And she passed on songs, at least three that I know of for sure, that became hits for other people. She just had the worst song choice. And she was a huge star. And it just ruined her whole thing. So can managers and the people around them not have that kind of influence? They can have that kind of influence, yeah. But I don't trust managers to make musical choices. Now, for we me. were talking about that the other day. Freddie DeMann was in here a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about how when an artist takes guidance from people like in his case he was a manager and he was a manager who had their best intentions that uh-huh. you know their, their, he had the best intention towards their careers and so many of them go well you don't know what you're talking about I'm going to do this and then they go off and they do crazy things he used the example of Madonna's book that she did that he desperately where she was yes yeah, the sex book okay. and just talking about you know how many choices that that she went off and did the wrong thing and it seems to permeate the industry that when they get a little fame and they get a little money and then they get a little bit more ego and then their mm-hmm. egos sort of take over and they get a lot of yes people around them and mm-hmm. then they stop listening to people that only want the best product to come out like you right that's an interesting study because madonna is one of those artists that is a very rare artist for sure. So she really knew what was best for her more than anybody in the world. Like if I was, I produced Madonna back in the 90s, but if I had produced, kept producing her, I would have wanted her to stay as a disco artist because that's what I loved about her. But she didn't want to stay as a disco artist. She wanted to advance forward. So that would have been an interesting choice. I mean, I'm sure Freddie and her had a lot of battles, but she's somebody who really, really knew what was coming next. Better than probably Freddie. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's very rare that an artist... Do you think um, Gaga's like that? Gaga's like that, but a little bit not as good. I mean, in terms of what she thinks is coming next. If you look at Madonna's career, I don't think she made any missteps for the first 25 years. Gaga's made a lot of missteps, I think. Even though I think she's Would brilliant. you have bet on Miley with all the craziness and then... I love Miley. Yeah, I do too. I love her. Anybody that can sing that mountain climb on her... I mean, yeah, I love her. The well, climb. I love that song. Well, she's just got that that deep soul to her or gift. I don't know which yeah. it is, but it, you you feel like she would... Like you were talking about bringing a singer along. You feel like she would go on that journey with you in yeah. a way that would be with full abandon. But you see, I'd want her to do some more songs like The Climb, and she didn't want to do that. So I'd be totally the wrong person for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, my sons and I had a conversation the other night about who the best female voice was slash is. Mm-hmm. And many names came out. Barbara Streisand, Celine, Adele, Rihanna, many, many names. We ended up, of the five of us, mm-hmm. three of the five said Celine has the best voice. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Agreed. That girl has an unbelievable yeah, voice. I agree. Time and I have my little phone filled with all these songs. And every time <laughs> I land on one of her songs, I'm like, ah, I love this song. Yeah. I mean, I happen to agree. I think Celine and Bocelli, for me, male, female, oh, have the best voices. He has uh, an amazing for me. voice. But who would you guys put in a time capsule to show a thousand years from now what music was like from 1950 to the year 2000? That is the second half of the 20th century. Who would you put? One man, one woman. Oh, well, that's too hard. God, and I have it? such I, different tastes. Well, let me give you. Let me give you. I would never Elvis. pick Celine Dion as the greatest okay, voice. No, okay, so. I know because you like the Stones. No, I would pick Simone or somebody like that <laughs> yeah, because okay. I, for me, singing is a much more sort of soulful thing. Yeah, and would, Celine is so perfect. She's too perfect mm, for me. That's what I love about her. I bet I get it. Yeah. But it's just for yeah. me. So the first half of the century. Listen to Etta James sing at last. 
I mean, there's not a single person that could ever have sung that song as well as she did. Everybody's got one in them. That's one. I mean, obviously. Everybody's got one in them. Okay, the first half of the century, arguably, I would say it's Louis Armstrong and Judy Garland. Oh, my God, Judy Garland's voice. That pretty much typifies the first half of the 20th century to me. The father of improvisation Mm -hmm. and Judy Garland. Second half is more difficult because you could say Elvis. Elvis. You could say Elton John. For the man, you could say Frank Sinatra. John Lennon. Well, not as not a, singer, a singer, I don't think. I, I mean, I don't know. when you want to show what the last half of the of the century looked like musically, I don't think John Lennon, for me, would apply. Huh. But certainly Elvis could. Madonna could sneak in there in terms of the 30 of the 50 years anyway. Barbara. Right? Barbara. Music today is based around four chords. And you could say, oh, well, that's kind of you know uncool. But when you think about it, the 60s, what were the 60s? This is every song in the 60s that became a hit was this. <laughs> Thousands of songs were written on Yeah! Now. <laughs> Four different chords. That was my point. That's so interesting. You know, this is why I love a musician like um, Jeff Lynne. Mm-hmm. Because it feels to me like he pulls from so many different. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I don't even know that. Oh, <laughs> I don't either. Electric so. Light Orchestra. Oh, that I. Brian I, Adams' last yeah. album. Great, great uh, artist. Great artist. Yeah, yeah. He's writing uh, the musical for uh, Pretty Woman now. He's writing the music oh. for the Broadway musical Pretty Woman. This is a who? perfect segue. Let's... I don't know who. The, oh, with Jim Valance, his co-writing partner. Ah. Yes. What's the segue, Let's baby? Talk about Broadway. Well, you know, There's so many things going on on Broadway now. Yeah. I'm going to see Dear Evan Hansen next week in New York, which I hear is Great. fantastic. Yeah. And look at what this guy did with Hamilton. I mean, yeah. who would have ever thought that would have happened? That's crazy. That's Are you interested movie. in anything like that? I am. I'm, I'm working on um, a show called Betty Boop right now. I'm reluctant to call it a Broadway musical because we're not on Broadway yet, but we're fast-tracked to get to Broadway. And uh, we have a director, we have a producer, we have a book writer, and it's all... Good, and I've written a lot of songs for it. Um, Rebecca heard one of the songs from it a few weeks ago. Um, oh, yeah, you told us about that. Yeah, and it's great. So Broadway is a great place for me because on Broadway, you don't have to write a hit song. You just have to write a good song. And I'm still capable of writing a good song. And you're not so, capable of a hit song? Why I would you say that? That's so. so Canadian of you. No, so. I, I, you know, I ran into Neil last night. Neil, and, and he was like, dude, come on. I come on over. Just lay down some shit for me, man. I'll just sing over it. And I've had opportunities like that with The weekend, with Drake and with Neil, but I just haven't done it for whatever reason. You know. So I have a question for you, all the four of you again. And it's quick, rapid fire. <laughs> Why do you think we're here? Not here in this room, but here on this earth. To give birth. Okay. Why do you think? Well, I'm, I believe in reincarnation, so to learn your lessons, to move, okay. to create things. Okay. I believe we're here for one reason only, to love and be loved. Of course, I'm a romantic. Right. I don't think there's any other reason why we're we, here. So two of, the, two of us answered that question basically a, the same way. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. I was reading yesterday um, one of the articles that I was um, fascinated by is that there's so much discussion about AI and that... You know, in some period in the future, there won't be any need for humans anymore. Yeah. And you could get to that point of view fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... it's Elon Musk is getting there, that's for he, sure. Elon Musk is getting there for sure. This is one of the things I'd love to know what you think about this. The speed with which things are changing. I mean, the ability for you to produce music today is logarithmically simpler than it was 20 years ago. And I'm sure that you've seen changes in your industry and in the way you work 
yeah. that are true, that have changed the quality and the and the nature of your life. What do you think about? Well, that? Well, the incredible thing about technology—it's no secret—is that technology is exponential, and so mm-hmm. technology feeds on technology, and technology teaches okay. itself to be exponential, which is kind of crazy. But you've you learned know, it. Learned to have the technical prowess that you have yeah. to produce music the way that it sounds. Well, here's what I don't like about the way music is made today. And when you look at these award shows, and it doesn't quite answer your question, but people wonder why The Voice has never created a star, why American Idol only created two stars, and that was 10, 15 years ago. Because these kids, although they can sing well, they come from the bedroom to the stage. And you see the 19-year-old being interviewed on behind the scenes on The Voice, and it's like, I'm so happy to be here. I've struggled so hard. If I don't make it here, I don't know what I'm going to do. My life is over. You're 19. You just came from your bedroom. You've never played in a club. You've never been thrown up on. You've never had beer (laughs) thrown at you. You've never been booed. What advice do you give in that realm? I know networking, but what would you You say? You really can't. You know why? Because all of us in this room, did did you ever walk up to anybody and go, how can I do what you do? Did we, we don't do that. You don't walk up to a record producer when you're 18 and go, I want to be a record producer. How can I be one? It's the Nike uh, slogan. Just mm-hmm. do it. We just mm-hmm. do it. You're not going to ask anybody how you can become a, a great wealth management person. You just do it by coming up through the ranks. So, you know, years ago, I got, had the opportunity to spend 10 days on a boat with a man named Mo Austin, who was the chairman of Warner Brothers Records. Mm-hmm. He signed Genius. Prince. He signed... Garfunkel, Simon Garfunkel. He signed so many acts. He was a genius. And I thought, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to get to sit for 10 days at his feet and learn so much about what it's like to be a true executive. And I learned nothing. Not that he didn't want to share it. He couldn't share it because he doesn't know how he did it. And I don't know how I did it. And you guys don't know how you did it. We just did it. And so I have no advice for people other than, like I said earlier, the road to success is straight. It's not curved. So if you take any diversions... Somebody else is going to take How was your experience when you had your label at Universal with Verb? Terrible. Because? Because I sucked. And it was a very bad period of my life um, where I was trying to be a full-time record producer and a full-time executive. And that's two full-time jobs. And both jobs suffered. Had I quit producing like Jimmy Iovine did, maybe I would have been a good executive. But I unashamedly admit that I was not good at running a label. So the idea of you can have a great record and great talent doesn't necessarily mean at all that that's the end of the road if you don't have an organization and team to push it through as an executive, you know, as yeah, a great executive. Yeah, I was great at making records, fail. but then I handed them off to people that were great at making them hits. In this right. case, I made the records, then I handed it off to myself. Right. It's like, what? Yeah. You know the Peggy Lee song, Is That All There Is? Is that all there is? She nailed it. Is that yeah, she all did. Whoever wrote that song nailed it. Yeah. If that's yeah. all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. <laughs> What's the rest of the lyric? Let's bring out the booze and have a ball. If that's all. If that's all there is? There yes, is. that's all there is, baby. <laughs> Don't go looking too deep because you're not going to find it. Yeah. You're not going to find it. That's how Bach could write etudes at age five. That's how she could be who she is at 13 if it's just there and you tap into it. It's not a more far-fetched theory than that we're expected that this eight-pound thing holds everything. Interesting. I love that. Wow. Mm. That's interesting. That. Could work. Right, Because yeah. I know that the best songs come through me and not from me, 100%. And any writer, and all of you will agree, mm-hmm. your best ideas, the pen can't go fast yeah. enough for your ideas. It's coming through you and not from you. So I had an opportunity to work with Grace Vanderwall, who won uh, America's Got Talent. So she's, she's 13, a little guitar 13 player. years yeah. old. She plays ukulele. Mm-hmm. She's an incredible soul, this kid. Mm-hmm. Poised, talented, vision. 
And you look at her and you go, how is it that it's possible she has all that at 13? What do you think about that? We're expected to believe that this eight pound thing in our head is the most massive computer on the planet and it holds all the knowledge, right? What about if all the knowledge is in the universe and we just tap into it? That's how the 13-year-old, that's how Bach could write etudes at age five. That's how she could be who she is at 13 if it's just there and you tap into it. It's not a more far-fetched theory than that we're expected that this eight-pound thing holds everything. Interesting. I love that. Wow. That's interesting. That. Could work, right? Because yeah. I know that the best songs come through me and not from me. 100%. And any writer and all of you will agree mm-hmm. your best ideas, the pen can't go fast yeah. enough for your ideas. It's coming through you and not from you. Wow. Sorry, this is amazing what conversation. What time is it? Yeah, it's time to say goodbye. Time to say goodbye? Time I to I think we could all keep you here goodbye. for another hour. <laughs> well, you guys are very interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, yeah. David. Thanks, David. Thank so girls. much fun. Next time, our guest will be William H. Macy. He's had a very prolific, successful, and diverse career as an actor, writer, producer, and director. He's appeared on the off-Broadway stages of New York City and Chicago and was one of the stars on the TV series ER. He's a veteran of the independent film world with extensive credits in Hollywood movies like Fargo, The Lincoln Lawyer, and Boogie Nights. He's a multiple Emmy Award winner and has started two theater companies, one of them with legendary playwright David Mamet. He and his wife, actress Felicity Huffman, have one of the longest marriages in Hollywood. And he stars as the lovable but hopeless alcoholic Frank Gallagher on the much-loved Showtime series Shameless. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with William H. Macy next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 